Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast. The Pariahs. In our timeline at the moment, with three nations independent and one to go in this phase of the Yugoslav Wars, but for most of the 91-92 season at least, there was still a Yugoslavia, shrunken though it was, that contained the Serb, Bosnian, Montenegrin, Macedonian and Kosovar clubs. While we've walked through Slovenia to its final form and Croatia to, well, to a different phase of conflict, in this episode it's time to switch our focus back to good old Yugoslavia, as it headed from 1991 into 1992, before we go headlong into Bosnia next time out. An extremely topical time to start that, given the happenings there at the moment. The first big issue that had to be sorted before the 91-92 season was exactly what to do about the clubs that had left the league. Gone were Dinamo, Hajduk, Osijek, Rijeka and Olympia, with NK Zagreb also not coming up from the second tier, resulting in six slots needing to be filled. Two of those slots were reasonably obvious to fill, by simply not relegating anyone, with Sloboda Tuzla and Spartak getting a reprieve in spite of the fact that Spartak had managed a grand total of four points in the entire 1991 season, which surely was enough reason by itself to keep their relegation confirmed. Coming up would be the second-placed team in the second league, Vardar, third-placed OFK, fourth-placed Suceska, and finally sixth-placed Pelister, with fifth-placed Kikinda overlooked for some reason, in spite of being based in a still Yugoslav region in Vojvodina. However, that was far from the end of the complications this season would see, thanks to the Bosnian clubs. As we'll go into properly in the next episode, the situation in Bosnia-Herzegovina worsened through late 1991 and, when the Vance plan was sorted at the start of 92, swiftly went from bad to much, much worse. As a result, Clubs ended up leaving the league mid-season, with the first to go being Zelyeznikar. Their final completed game would be in round 25 of the league, with a 6-1 loss to Partizan. However, their game the following week, hosting Rad in Sarajevo in Gabivica, did kick off, but had to be abandoned after 35 minutes, as the first attacks on Sarajevo began mid-match, and the stadium was suddenly surrounded by gunfire and shelling. As a result, Zelyeznikar left the league immediately, with all of their results in the second half of the season scrubbed. FK Sarajevo, Sloboda Tuzla and Velez Mostar would all leave the league soon after, unable to play in the final six rounds, with also games between the three sides left unplayed also, giving that getting the teams around to games simply wasn't safe. With the multi-ethnic Velez's situation soon complicated by the refounding of the Croat Mostar club in Srinsky Mostar as well, Borac Banja Luka, the last Bosnian side in the league and based, of course, in the heart of the Serbian part of Bosnia-Herzegovina, remained to play the whole season to its finish, and even ended the season with silverware of a sort, winning the final ever edition of the Mitropa Cup after beating BVSC Budapest on penalties in Foggia. Borac 
would remain in the Yugoslav League until 1995, albeit playing their games from within Serbia and albeit the league officially being in a different Yugoslavia. We'll get to that. So, this was all a bit complicated as I'm sure you can tell. But the end result of it was that every game due to be in Zaliesnikar's second half of the season, whether it was actually played or not, became completely annulled, with no one getting any points, and the season finishing on 33 games rather than 35 for those who played everything. For Velez, Sarajevo and Sobotuzla, their final games, as they withdrew slightly later in the season, were awarded as 3-0 wins to the opposing sides, except where those games were between two of those three sides, as Sabota were due to play both Sarajevo and Velez, with those games being annulled and no one getting any points. Both OFK, Belgrade and Pelister managed to get six points for free out of this, which, while it didn't have any sort of actual material impact on anything, because, as we covered in the previous episode focusing on the Macedonian situation, Pelister and Vlada would also depart the league, albeit at the end of the season, so there would be no relegation, and the constituent parts of the league in the 92-93 season would be cobbled together from Serbia, Montenegro, Kosovo, and with Borac on top to make an odd number of sides in the league. As, much like Ponciana's inclusion, way back in the very first proper first league edition in 1946, the inclusion of Borac going forward was as much to make a political point that Serbia had dibs on Bosnia, as it was because there was any actual footballing sense in a club based in the middle of a war zone playing in a different country just to take part in another country's league. Albeit, to be fair, when we actually eventually get round to the founding of the Bosnian league system, playing in another country was actually probably less of a logistical headache than trying to create some sort of unified structure in Bosnian football. But that's for the future. And the man at the centre of most things in the 91-92 season was to be Ivica Osim. For a start, he was still a Yugoslavia manager, something we'll cover in full at the end of this episode. But he also took up a new role in the summer of 91 to do some double duty. Specifically, he became manager of Partizan. To start with his most notable club exploit in this season, he won the cup. But, like everything this season... It requires a bit more explanation than that. As covered in previous episodes, after winning the cup in 1991, Hajduk simply never returned to the cup, the physical cup itself, meaning that the cup competition had to change name from being the Marshall Tito Cup, which it had been since 1947, to just the Yugoslav Cup, because the Marshall Tito Cup was no longer in the hands of the Yugoslav FA. To add to it, the whole thing was actually drawn prior to lots of clubs leaving Yugoslavia because of the format of the Yugoslav Cup meant that local competitions that fed into it had actually been played in the 1991 season. Of the 16 planned round of 32 ties, only 8 actually took place with, perhaps most entertainingly and presumably symbolically, a select side from the JNA getting a walkover over Gradansky formerly Dinamo, Zagreb. When it came to the semis, and a round that everyone actually got to play in, Partizan would benefit from a walkover with Zelyeznikar pulling out between the legs due to the war issues mentioned, pre mentioned earlier, which led to the final being between Siesta and Partizan, 
and Pakistan running out 3-2 aggregate winners over the two legs of that tie. In the league, I'm sure you'll all be devastated to find out that this was to be the final season of Shaiba's penalties, as after this, draws become draws again rather than penalty shootouts. To start in the second league, it unsurprisingly encountered many of the issues that we've seen in the first league. The Macedonian clubs of Tetex and Balkan left at the end of the season, Shelik Sinica and Iskra Bogoino, within an hour's drive of each other in the centre of Bosnia, both left mid-season, for similar reasons to Sarajevo and Zelyeznikov, the war was on their doorsteps. Meanwhile, Leital Trebinje and Ruda Rubia, soon to be Ruda Priador, both finished off the season before going. Trebinje was in the very south and was already pretty much just a military base, given that it was the command centre for the JNA's Dubrovnik campaigns. Priador in the north was also a hub of activity. Arguably, the war to come's second most famous site of massacre and genocide behind Srebrenica. The result of the first league's changes meant that at the end of the 91-92 season, seven sides would earn promotion. Champions Veche, Hajduk Kula, a return to the top here for the My Story of Radniki Belgrade, Montenegrin's Mogren, Kosovar's Pristina, Napredak Krusevac, and finally Kikinda, who had been passed over in the season prior in favour of Pelister. The gaps left in the second league would, of course, require a few promotions from the third tier for 92-93, which means we're going to give a first mention in passing on the podcast for a club that benefited from that particular change, and who, in a few seasons' time, would become very prominent indeed. Obilic. In Europe... Yugoslavia did not have representatives in the Cup Winners' Cup, sort of, thanks to Hajduk having absconded the Cup and the European spot, and with Dinamo that weren't calling themselves Dinamo taking any away for Cup slot, it left two remaining proper, in inverted commas, Yugoslav sides in Europe, Partizan in the UEFA Cup, and the reigning defending European champions Svena Svesta in the European Cup. Much like Heinduk and Dinamo, Partizan's European adventures were fleeting at best against Sporting Gijon in the first round. In Spain, so often a graveyard for the hopes of Partizan, Gijon won 2-0 before travelling to the second leg in Istanbul at the former ground of Besiktas, the Inonu. That second leg would be wild, with Partizan staying 2-0 down on aggregate until the last five minutes of the game. Predrag Miatovic would head home in the 85th minute, before Slobodan Kirchmarevich poked home at the near post three minutes later to get Partizan into extra time and, eventually, penalties, where Scheiber's penalties would not serve them well, and a wild miss by Gudelia and a shot saved from Novak sent Partizan out. For Sviesta, things would, of course, be a bit different. As alluded to a few episodes back when we went in deep on the European Cup winning campaign, their training camp in Italy for the European Cup final had been in complete lockdown, so as to stop Western clubs distracting players preparing for the game by luring them to move elsewhere. With the big year trophy secured, however, 
such precautions were dispensed with. Ljubko Petrovic left for Espanyol, embarking on a career outside of Yugoslavia that would potentially give him the longest managerial CV in the history of football. His replacement would be Vladica Popovic, who'd won five titles at Siesta as a player in the 50s and 60s, but his managerial career had mainly been in Colombia, with only one successful year at Napredak in the late 70s, where he earned promotion to the First League as domestic experience. On the playing side, the exodus began. Chief among those names was, of course, Robert Prosnecki, who departed for Real Madrid, but he was simply the biggest name to go. Dragisa Binic would depart for Slavia Prague, Refik Sabanadzevic to AEK Athens, and Stevan Stojanovic to Antwerp, as all joined Prosnecki as summer departures, with Vlada Stosic going to Mallorca mid-season, and Slobodan Marovic going to Norkoping six months after winning the European Cup, over half the side had up sticks and gone to more peaceful climes, and often at the club's behest. Stevan Stojanovic would recall that when the offer from Antwerp came in, he was on the fence until he spoke to dignitaries at Sviesta who simply said, The country's falling apart. You have to go. What was left behind was still pretty good, though. While Sviesta wouldn't stroll to the title with the ease of the prior season, they still picked up the title by four points with time to spare, and would still perform amazingly on the continental stage, in spite of not playing a single game at the Maracanã and having the balance of things massively tipped against them. One good indication of this would be the European Super Cup. The Super Cup was a child of the early 70s and had been created essentially so Dutch sides could have an extra thing to win. The first edition was unofficial because UEFA didn't want to recognise Rangers after trouble in their Cup Winners' Cup final win, but from the second edition on, UEFA were fine with it. It had had a troubled history. Three seasons were missed out entirely, two because the clubs involved just couldn't find time to play it, and once because English sides had been kicked out after Heysel an issue further exacerbated by the fact that prior to 1998, UEFA wanted the Super Cup to be two-legged. So, with Yugoslavia in a state of unrest, UEFA, in their infinite wisdom, decided that the game this time round would be one-legged, and that that leg would take place at Old Trafford, home of Sviesta's opponents, Cup winners, Cup winners, Manchester United. And while Zvezda would generally be on top for much of the game, it would be United who would pick up a 1-0 win after a Brian McClare goal. Now, while the European Super Cup, particularly at this time, was little more than essentially a glorified friendly, and UEFA have never really actually managed to change that perception, whether it's played in Monaco or as a travelling circus around Europe, it was Sviesta's first serious European game of the season, and that's in spite of them having already had two rounds of the European Cup to work through. Because the 1991-92 European Cup is a bit of a curate's egg, in the respect that it came with an altered format, having chucked out the meritoriousness of actually being a straight-out knockout competition in favour of a partial move towards the full-on monetoriousness of the current format. The result was two rounds of knockout football before the last eight, 
went into two groups of four with the winners of those groups taking their place in the final. Putting aside questions of the actual merit of this system, the fact was that if it intended to ensure that some big sides departed the competition before the group stage, yet kept the group stage pretty strong, it actually worked. The first round saw decent European sides like Rangers and Besiktas knocked out. The second round, rather amazingly, saw Barcelona versus West German champions Kaiserslautern and also Benfica versus Arsenal. Two genuinely good late-stage European ties gone before the groups, with Marseille falling by the wayside too, losing to Sparta Prague. While plenty of big teams got knocked out early, Zvierta had to tackle Northern Irish champions Portadown in the first round, and then Cypriot's Apollon Limassol in the second. The combined aggregate score from those two ties would be 13-1 in Zvierta's favourite with both home legs taking place in Hungary, in Szeged. In the groups, Sviesa's first home game would take place in Budapest, with the other two taking place in Sofia, neither of which are actually Belgrade. Their first opponents would be Sampdoria. Samp had won their only Serie A title the season prior under old friend of the podcast Vujadin Boskov, and had a familiar figure in the defence also, that of former partisan player, and the man who left Italian Ninety after threats against his family, Stretchko Katanec. Being the best side from the best league in the world, Sampdoria were predictably pretty good, and went ahead early in Genoa through a Sasa Nadelkovic own goal. A cross came in and was met by a spectacular Cereso airshot, with the ball ending up bouncing off Nadelkovic's standing leg and dribbling in the opposite corner. The second would be equally agricultural. A hoofed long ball from Roberto Mancini would be allowed to bounce between defenders and Viali would pounce, sending a weak shot that dribbled under Zvonko Milojevic in goal. Unlucky for the first, Sviesta were laxed for the second and Sampdoria were on their way. In between the first two Champions League group games, sorry, European Cup group games at this point, was another curiosity, a trip to Tokyo for the Intercontinental Cup. For those unaware, younger listeners in particular, this was the precursor to the Club World Cup, where the winner of the European Cup and the winner of the Copa Libertadores would face off to see who was the best in the world. Unlike the European Super Cup, which was often played in a friendly atmosphere, the Intercontinental Cup alternated between ties that were competitive and ties that erupted into outright battles. In prestige, however, the competition wavered depending on precisely how fussed the European sides were in playing the thing, particularly in the 1970s when both Ajax and then Bayern and then Liverpool decided they didn't want to compete in it particularly given the late 60s had seen a boom in the tie being an opportunity for South American size to kick seven shades of the proverbial out of the Europeans, resulting in a series of incidents that alternated from the comical to the career-ending. The 80s, however, had seen a rebirth of the tournament as Toyota chucked some money at it, guaranteeing the game would now take place as a one-legged tie in Tokyo 
thereby giving neutral ground and taking some of the sting out of European objections. It meant the tie became the unofficial Club World Cup, given that FIFA could never really get that particular idea off the ground until much more recently. Yugoslav sides had participated in some earlier attempts to do a Club World Cup type thing, such as Dinamo appearing in the 1963 International Soccer League and Sviesta appearing in the 1951 Copa Rio. But the one-off nature of the Intercontinental Cup gave it the same power that others didn't have. Sviesta's task would be Chile's Colo Colo, managed by Croat Mirko Josic, who had led the World Youth Cup win in Chile and then just stayed there, winning Chile's first and only Libertadores title in 1991. Vladimir Jugovic would open the scoring in the first 20 minutes, picking up a slotted ball through from Panchev to poke a low finish home. Dejan Sevicevic, who was captaining the side, would then be sent off for headbutting a defender late in the first half, but in spite of being down to 10, Jugovic would double the scoring just before the hour mark, picking up the pieces after some messy goalkeeping. Things would end with a magical counter-attack as Jugovic drove through the centre, sent Mihailovic down the left, who slid the ball into Panchev in the middle for a simple tap-in. Four days later, after triumph in Tokyo, Sviesta were back in action in Hungary, hosting Anderlecht. Anderlecht had knocked out Grasshopper's Zurich and PSV, with no small thanks to their star forward, the legendary Luke Nilist. Sviesta went ahead via a Milorad Ratkovic goal on the end of a low Mihailovic free kick. Anderlecht would roll back via Lamptey and Nilist. Ilya Ivic would bring things level, picking himself off the floor after having his clock cleaned by a high boot and scoring after a turn in the box from the ensuing throw-in. With two minutes left, Panchev would get on the end of a long diagonal, take one touch to control, one to round the keeper, and one more to finish, and get the group stage really going for Siesta. They would keep that momentum up in the following two games against Panathinaikos. The first in Athens would be 2-0 from a Panchev double, a little bit more about Panchev in that game later. The most impressive goal from that being a wicked late slice of a toe poke from 25 yards going in off the bar for the second. While the return time Sofia would be settled by a Mihailovic penalty, who would later be hit by an object from the stands, as, with Panathinaikos eliminated, the game got decidedly unfriendly. It left Stuester needing a win when hosting either Sampdoria or Anderlecht to qualify for the final. Hosting Sampdoria in Game 5 of the group, Sviesta got off to a perfect start with a trademark Mihailovic free kick opening the scoring on 19 minutes. Katanec would equalise just after the half-hour mark with a, after a header of his was blocked and came straight back to him to poke home. For the second time against Sampdoria, an own goal changed things. Maza Vasilievich, the unlucky one this time, having shrugged Viali off the ball and then promptly lobbing his own keeper. Roberto Mancini would round things off with 15 to go. Still, a big win in Belgium would have done it, but things got off to the worst possible start, as the long-range shot was spilled to Luis Oliveira for a tap-in. The exact thing would happen more or less straight away at the other end, a Mihailovic free kick parried straight to Panchev to do what he did best. The first half will conclude with Johnny Bosman 
bulleting a header in to make it 2-1. And I really do mean bulleting a header in. You will struggle to see a better connection on a header anyway, anywhere. I heartily recommend going and finding a clip of that. Savisa Kula would equalise on 80 minutes after a Jugovic free kick was spilled, but Mark de Greece would win it for Antlecht with a 25-yard daisy cutter, almost straight from kickoff. The defence of the European Cup was over as Sampdoria advanced to the final. The exodus after this season from Svenas Fiesta would perhaps mark the single greatest exodus of talent from an individual summer in the history of football. And if there is a greater one, I'd love to hear it, as only Juve post-Calciopoli really compares. And even then, this is quite something. In the summer of 1992 alone, Dejan Savicevic would move to AC Milan. Panchev to Inter. Sinisa Mihailovic to Roma. Vladimir Jugovic to Sampdoria. Mirdrag Beloditici to Valencia, Ilya Naidoski to Valladolid, and more. Given the talent that had left the season prior, it's arguable to say that the golden generation was already over in the summer of 1991. But the summer of 1992 would confirm it, as what would happen on the international stage would doom Serbian clubs for over a decade. Post-Italia 90, Yugoslavia was on the scene having restored itself to being one of the world's best national sides, but were thrown a difficult group in qualifying for Euro 92. Facing Denmark, who would do quite well at Euro 92, as we'll find out later, and fellow World Cup 90 qualifiers, Austria. Yugoslavia would be immediately given a favour by Austria, who went to play the Faroe Islands in what would be the Islanders' first ever competitive game, hosted in Landskrona in Sweden, as there wasn't actually an appropriate ground available in the islands themselves. They would promptly defy the odds and turn the Austrians over, thanks to a Torquil Nielsen goal, whose two international goals would come in the Faroes' first ever game versus Canada in 1989, and their first competitive game here versus Austria. There's a pub quiz answer for you, if you ever needed it. Meanwhile, Yugoslavia would start the group on fire, winning 2-0 in Northern Ireland, demolishing Austria 4-1 at the Maracanã with a Panchev hat-trick, beating Denmark in Copenhagen 2-0, and then another Panchev hat-trick against Northern Ireland at the Maracanã in a 4-0 win. While Denmark did manage to beat Yugoslavia in Belgrade, Yugoslavia then did what Austria couldn't, and beat the Faroes in a doubleheader 7-0 and 2-0 before rounding off the group and qualification with ease with a win over Austria. However, between the doubleheader against the Faroes, nations left Yugoslavia. Of the 13 players who played in the 7-0 game, seven were from regions that had left Yugoslavia prior to the 2-0 game. Even at the time, players didn't quite realise the implication of everything that was going on. Mehmed Bazdarevic stated, There was talk about the Croatian players leaving for some time, but when they pulled out it was a hard blow. We didn't see it as farewell though. We thought they'd come back in a couple of months once everything had settled down. Regardless of the status of Croatia and Slovenia, 
Yugoslavia were going to Euro 92 and to repeat Racine, and with consummate ease, with Pancho scoring 10 in the eight games. However, things didn't settle down. On the 25th of March 1992, although no one knew it at the time, Yugoslavia played their final full international match, a 2-0 loss to the Dutch in Amsterdam. By that time, the Croats, Slovenes and some Macedonians had gone from the squad, leaving Serbs, Bosnians, Montenegrins and Ilya Nidoski. Panchev had gone from the squad after writing his nationality on entry to Greece to play Panathinaikos Vezjevsta as Macedonian, which probably went down about as well in Greece as it did in Yugoslavia. Unofficially, he said he needed to rest. Unofficially, he had already signed with Inter, and pressure had been put on him not to play by, mem by his representatives and allegedly representatives of Inter. Twelve days after that game against the Dutch, the first bombs began to land on Sarajevo, and the entire outlook of Yugoslavia changed. On the 27th of April, Yugoslavia would adopt a new constitution, becoming the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, removing the word socialist from its name, which essentially formalised what everyone already knew, that Yugoslavia was simply Milosevic's state. On May the 23rd, one day after lifting the Yugoslav Cup with Partizan, Ivica Osim resigned from both Partizan and Yugoslavia. Osim, of course a native of Sarajevo, had earned the respect of his peers and the respect of a nation, having restored Yugoslavia to one of the world's premier nations. Ultimately, it was Osim who delivered the verdict. My country doesn't deserve to play in the European Championship. On the scale of human suffering, I cannot reconcile events at home with my position as national manager. Quite aside from being national team manager of a nation that was falling apart, Osim had seen the front line of rhetoric as partisan manager. As mentioned in episode 60 on the Maximir riot, one of the key figures in Sviesta's ultras was, of course, Arkan. And in the March 1992 derby versus Partisan, members of his Tigers, the parliamentary group that Rasnatovich led, started holding aloft trophies they had captured, specifically road signs. As Ossim sat on the sidelines knowing the mood was darkening in his own city, fans from both sides applauded the Zviesta Ultras holding aloft a sign that simply said, Welcome to Vukovar. Once the bombs began to fall in Bosnia, Yugoslavia's Bosnian players soon talked to make a united front. Panchev walked too. Five days later, the rump of Yugoslavia, led by Osim's assistant Ivan Kabrinovic, played what was meant to be the last pre-Euros warm-up game against Fiorentina, hosted, of course, in Luigi Ferrari Stadium in Genoa, the same stadium that two years prior had seen Yugoslavia knocked out of the World Cup by Argentina. While outside the ground, politicians protested that Yugoslavia were being allowed to play in the first place. The squad flew to Sweden into their planned Euros camp the following day, while events overtook them as rumours swirled that the international community had had enough, and even to the point that Sweden, under pressure from Croatian emigres in the country, 
were potentially just going to refuse to let them in the country. At the same time, Raku Mladic intensified the bombing of Sarajevo and the UN put their foot down. UN Security Council Resolution 757 included the following wording. All states shall take the necessary steps to prevent the participation in sporting events on their territory of persons or groups representing the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. Once that verdict was handed down, UEFA President Lenat Johansson turned up at the team hotel brandishing a copy of the resolution and providing the death sentence for Yugoslavia's participation in the Euros, not on sporting merit, but because the international community had decided they had simply gone far too far to remain part of approved international society. In their place would, play, would be Denmark, who would of course go on and win Euro 92. But for Yugoslavia, the Euros, the Olympics, hell, any international sporting event, they were all gone. Even getting out of Sweden was a farce. The resolution as it was impacted trade so much that the Serb pilot had great difficulty to even get the plane fueled in Sweden so he could actually take off. At the stroke of a pen in New York, Yugoslavia were banned from playing anyone. Svenezvjesta, European champions a year prior, were out of Europe. Partizan, Vojvodina, OFK, Radniki Nish, the long list of clubs within the remaining nation that had excelled at times on the continental stage, were all out of Europe. Players who a couple of weeks prior were playing as part of one of Europe's better leagues were suddenly left scrambling to find a contract elsewhere, anywhere, as soon as possible. It would not be until the 95-96 season that sides would be allowed to return to European competition, with it being a further two years until they would be allowed in the Champions League. The national side would not play until the very end of 1994 and would not be allowed to take part in an international competition until the qualifying process for France 98. The Federal Republic of Yugoslavia was about to enter the wilderness. And next time on the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast, we get ready to enter hell. Slovenia and Macedonia left with relative ease. Croatia had fought the JNA and were left with only the rump of the Krajina to fight. Bosnia? Well, Bosnia was about to experience the worst of everything. So yes, um, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to listen to that episode. I do apologise, things are a little bit slow um, in terms of production at the moment. Um, if you do follow me on social media, at HYFPRW, um, then uh, you probably know I have a couple of um, family issues um, at the, uh, going on. Uh, in the background, um, which have obviously taken up a lot of time, um, given the severity of them. Um, so yeah, um, I am in the middle of writing our first um, Bosnian War episode, and I think what you'll probably find is, or currently in the script for that, is sort of an explanation of what we're doing going forward on that particular front, because obviously that's going to be quite a long front um, to uh, sort out 
given the length of the war and uh, the sheer amount of issues that come from it. Um, so yes, we'll be quite history heavy in the next um, few episodes uh, until we get to um, Dayton, um, until we get to 1995. Um, and obviously I think in the next episode as well, I will just take some time to explain precisely what's going on in the region now as well. Um, because as a few commentators have said, uh, where, as I uh, say this in late November 2021, um, we're actually at a point where the situation in Bosnia-Herzegovina is more febrile than it probably has been since uh, 1995. Um, and obviously, uh, were that to kick off, then um, it would... Yes, I mean, it would be a, a, a quite incredible tragedy um, for, for the nation and for all of Europe. Um, but yes, um, I'll leave you on that cheery note, I suppose. If um, you have enjoyed this episode, as always, sharing is caring. Please do let uh, people know via your favourite social media things, you know, tweet, Facebook, whatever. Um, you know, the more listeners we get, um, obviously the the it doesn't actually have any impact on the content but um it makes me happy um and um i will do one quick shout out um quick shout out to um serbian football um which is at uh, serbia footy on twitter um i uh, won a recent uh, twitter competition with them and have now become the owner of a lovely uh, new serbia strip um which, given I've um, now got a, a Croatian boss, um, <laughs> it's going to go down well if I ever decide to wear that to football strip day at work. Um, <laughs> so yes, uh, thank you for thank you for get, getting me into uh, HR trouble there. Um, but yes, do follow them; uh, they are a, a fantastic account um, on on Twitter. So yes, do. Um, I've mentioned, I've mentioned sharing is caring. I'll also mention if you do uh, have a podcast service that actually accepts reviews, I don't think there's many that really do anymore. I think it's only really Apple. But if you do, do leave a review um, because that probably does something with their algorithms. I don't know. Um, so yes, it, it's incumbent on me only to say thank you very much uh, for taking the time to listen. Um, it is truly appreciated uh, by me. And I will catch you next time. Thank you.